Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talked to Iris Schur, the founder and CEO of Aribi, an AI-based web analytics tool that gives you actionable insights to help you make better data-driven marketing decisions. In 2016, Iris had an idea for a new SaaS product. She'd already built two successful startups and was ready for a new challenge. As a marketer, she knew how hard it was to make good data-driven decisions, and so she decided to solve that problem. She spent the next year talking to people and researching her idea. She had one big question. If this is a pain, why is nobody doing something about it? During that year, she also hired a developer and started building an MVP. She used Facebook ads to get her first customer for less than $50. In fact, you'll be shocked how quickly she got that first customer. The product was clearly solving a pain point because it didn't take long to find more customers. So now she had a good product, early customers, and was ready to raise money. But then Iris decided to kill the product. She shut it down and started looking for a different product idea. In this interview, you'll learn exactly what led to her making such a drastic decision. She talks about why the decision made sense at the time, but is something she still regrets today. There's an interesting story behind that decision and a useful lesson for all founders. Eventually, Iris did build another product. This time, her product was focused on web analytics. And in the last four years, she's grown her company to 60 employees and several thousand customers. And she's also raised $28 million in funding. It's a great interview with some interesting insights. As a serial entrepreneur, Iris already learned some tough lessons with her previous startup. In this interview, you learn about some counterintuitive things she did this time around. And those insights may actually help you to avoid making the same mistakes too. So I hope you enjoy it. Iris, welcome to the show. Hi. So you're a serial entrepreneur. This is uh, your your third startup that you're working on right now. What gets you out of bed every day? What inspires you to to work on on these businesses? What I like doing the best is uh, is building stuff. It's interesting because I I was always very artistic and I studied architecture and I have to say that the place that I feel most creative at. Uh, in life is um, in my company. I think it's mainly about like tackling new challenges, thinking about how to build things from scratch. I'm not speaking just about the product. It's also about uh, challenges with HR, marketing, crises. So I think that's what inspires me most to, to build new things, to build things that I don't have any reference to and to solve challenges. Great. So tell us about ROB, what does the product do? Who is it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? Mm -hmm. So Oribi is a marketing analytics tool. The main problem that we're helping to solve is uh, to help marketers to be data-driven, to understand how to allocate the budget, to really understand if the different efforts that they're working on actually convert. So I think that one of the toughest things to do today is to really understand uh, uh, if I'm writing content, does it actually bring uh, more people to convert? Uh, If I am making new videos, advertising, email marketing... 
And what we're doing very differently than uh, other tools and mainly Google Analytics, and we'll probably speak more about it later, is to have everything in a no-code approach. So we really want to take the developers out of the equation and to have the marketing teams to define all the data themselves, to ask all the questions. I think that all of you probably know the, the issue of trying to collect new data and then the marketers need to have a developer to add new events to the website. And usually it's a bottleneck, they don't have enough time and the marketers can do it by themselves. And that's what we're trying to change with Oribi, how to collect data and how to collect the entire customer journey in a super easy way, without code, without entering the website, and to use it within Oribi, but to also export it uh, to create uh, audiences on Facebook, new fields uh, on HubSpot, and so on. Who, who's your, you, you said marketers, but who's your ideal customer? Is there a certain type of company or size of company or, or a vertical that you're focused on? Mm-hmm. So today we're working mainly with uh, mid-sized companies, We work with uh, e-commerce, marketing agencies, SaaS companies, uh, finance, so a few different verticals, usually with a marketing spend of a few thousand dollars a month up to a few millions. Got it. Okay. So give us a sense of the size of the business and where you are right now. So Orbi was founded in 2016, so you've been been working on this business for, for over five years or about four or five years. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about like how big is the business today? What's the size of the team? And how many customers do you have? Mm-hmm. So today we're over 60 employees. We have a few thousand customers. We raised $28 million to date. Okay, awesome. Before we get into the story of, of how you how you came up with the idea for this business and got started... Tell us a little bit about what you were doing before, because as, as I mentioned earlier, this is your third startup. Mm-hmm. So just just give us a quick recap of like your first two startups so people have a little bit more context about your background. Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned before, I studied architecture. When I was just about to graduate, I decided that uh, that's not what I want to do in life. I wasn't sure what I want to do. It was a period that many of my friends started a company it seems like the easy pass. It wasn't one, but it was a very exciting one. And I decided to to start my company together with two founders. We were pretty clueless and learned everything the hard way. And we decided to start with something that came from the, the world that I came from and of uh, architecture and how to take 2D and 3D models into the web and uh, mobile. So these were the early days of mobile apps. And uh, there was a very interesting challenge over there. And it took us a while, but when we managed to create and build the product, we were backed by uh, Sequoia, and the company was acquired uh, by Autodesk later on. After the acquisition, we were in charge of all all the mobile development of, uh, of Autodesk and AutoCAD. I've been with Autodesk for two years, then I co founded another company called OverOps. A very different one. I really love the world of CAD and 2D and 3D modeling, but it's really hard to build large companies over there. And that's why I decided to to move to a different space. And this the second company was a company solving production debugging for developers, DevOps, a, a very technical one, a very interesting challenge. 
I was there for the first uh, four years and then uh, left and, uh, and started Ruby. Company is doing very well, raised over uh, $70 million to date. With both of my first companies, I led the product and marketing. I was always intrigued by uh, how challenging it is to be data-driven for marketing. I think that uh, what, what I love best about marketing is that the sales, the cycles are very short and you get like almost immediate feedback every time you, you change something, you create new content, you change your videos, ads, and so on. And you're able to see the results, but it was very hard for me to answer more advanced questions. So I can see like the CTR of a new video, but it was very, very challenging to understand how it really impacted sales. Or if I change something on the homepage, I can see how many people are clicking a different button right now, but they really want to understand the entire funnel and the entire impact. And that's what I decided to do with Oribi. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about how, how you came up with the idea. So you're seeing this this kind of pain and and as a as a serial entrepreneur, you're probably your your brain's already ticking away at how you can you can solve this problem. <laughs> but tell me a little bit more about like what led you to actually kind of get to the point where you were like, yeah, this there's enough here for me to want to commit the next you know x number of years on solving this problem. Yeah. So the first question that I ask myself is what is like my zone of genius? What am I doing best? Uh, where do I shine as entrepreneur? I, I say this is like a very important question for entrepreneurs. In many cases, like you're seeing that uh, th- there might be a very big challenge or a very big opportunity, but to, you're not the right person to solve it. So the first question was like, what do I do best? And the answer was B2B, low touch, high scale. I love product, I love marketing, I love B2B products. And and I felt that I can do a very good job at creating something that is low-touch, self-serve. And then I started asking myself, um, in which spaces there's still like a huge opportunity around it? So in which spaces there are lots of great tools for the enterprise, and also, but also not not enough tools for the mid market or things that are self serve. And I I really I found it very interesting the space of uh, of analytics and marketing analytics uh, because of this reason. So this is like a combination of something that I felt by myself. I felt it as a user, but also an area that I felt that I I can really be good at and I can create a simple product and to create a smart go-to-market. And then I started investigating it. So before I started, you know, the first year for Ruby was for me mostly about speaking with people, understanding what are the main barriers. And like my, my main question was, okay, so how come nobody's doing it? So it's obvious that all marketers want to be more data-driven. There is a pain. The market is big enough. And I can say that, the, the challenge is becoming more and more uh, challenging because of all the different channels, attribution challenges, and so on. But but the, the market still existed before. So I really try to answer the question of, like, what is the number one barrier and try to tackle it. Like when you said you spent the first year having those conversations, was this just through your own personal network? Were you reaching out to 
to strangers and other marketers? Like what, what was what was that yeah. process like? So one important shift that I made as entrepreneur was instead of trying to reach out to people that it's easier for me to reach out to, I always try to create to myself like this uh, dream list of people I want to speak with. One of the common mistakes of entrepreneurs is that, uh, let's say that you have a challenging time with marketing and you're not sure uh, what is the right go-to market for you. And then in most cases, you'll think, okay, so I know... uh, I know this guy and this company is doing well and my investor can help me to reach out to them. So usually like the the way you think about how to reach out to people is who I can get to plus who is interesting. And I I found that it's pretty easy to get to people. So I usually try and creating to myself this like wish list of all the people that I really feel that I want to speak speak with. I can give you another example that is a more, more recent one. About like four months ago, I decided to change the pricing and to change the packages and I wasn't sure about the right way to do it. And they wanted to speak with companies that they have like zero contact to. And I just reached out to people on LinkedIn. And I think that when, when you have a good story, and I, I think that today it's very hard to to succeed with cold emails if you're just like trying to reach out to customers and so on. But when I write to someone who's in charge of pricing, at a company that resembles Oribi but doesn't compete and the right to them that uh, this is where I'm at right now and I would love to hear their feedback about this specific issue, then I think like in 80% of the cases uh, I got a reply and managed to set, uh, to set a call. And I meet lots of young entrepreneurs that are meeting lots of people because they're trying to get to like the right answer and so on. And my advice is just create a list of five, ten people you really want to, to speak with and in most cases, you'll be able to reach most of, most of them. I, I think that's great. And, and ultimately, I think from what you're saying, it boils down to making sure that when you're reaching out to these people, it's super relevant. And, uh, you know, if, if you're kind of going in and really thinking hard about why you want to have a conversation with this person and explaining that to them, you're much more likely to get a response than, hey, let me just... Uh, copy and paste a cold email to a thousand people and hope, you know, some of them reply. Yeah, I think most people really enjoy helping other people if they feel that they can help. So I can share that like when I get an email of someone saying like, I need your help with marketing of a mobile app and I don't have any experience with it and I will usually say no even if it's someone that I know, but I will help someone that I feel that is very related to my space and, and can help. I can share more about like this topic that when I started Ruby, one of the common questions that I got from investors is how can you make sure that Google won't build something uh, similar? So I just reached out uh, via LinkedIn or email to ex-product managers of Google Analytics uh, from Google and told them that's where I'm at right now. I would love to hear your feedback. And they were happy to share what what they could, um, and they managed to get to them and to get interesting answers. That's awesome. And when you reach out to people, like on LinkedIn with that example with ex-product managers, the message you were sending, like, were you being that specific in terms of, you know, I'm doing this, this is a concern... I want to get your feedback on on whether this is going to be a problem for me or not. Because I think a lot of the times people kind of do the outreach and it's it's kind of pretty vague what they're asking for. It's just like, yeah, can I have a chat? Yeah. 
So I, I'm very specific. I think that in many cases, it will also help you to save time because in, in some cases, they might say, like, I'm not the right person or I can't really share anything about it. And I feel that if they can help, it will, being very specific is, is going to to help you to get more answers. I think that once you say, like you mentioned, something like, let's chat, and I'm building a new startup and looking for feedback. As in people, you think that uh, you probably reached out to dozens of uh, different people and you don't really need their uh, their help. Great. So you, you spent... You said about a year having these types of conversations, trying to understand what was going on. And I think the question you, you you mentioned a little earlier was, if there's a need here, why is nobody doing it? So what did you learn at the end of that? What were your takeaways? Mm-hmm. So first of all, it was a year of conversations, but also building the product. I'm usually very against of that, just like being in a theory and just learning. And there is like a limited that. Uh, there is a limited uh, data that you can pull from people. I always try to start developing a small product and test it around and also learn more about the go-to-market. And the main thing that we got to is that to build a good product, you need to have the data layer set. So let's say that you're building like a very nice product of uh, understanding, of analyzing uh, content marketing, for example. To have it right, you need to really understand what is each blog post, how do people interact with it, what do they do later, what, uh, which other conversions are related to it. And in most tools or in all tools, you need developers to use code-based events. They don't have enough time. And what happens is that you don't have the basic data layer. And therefore, even if you have this like amazing system of insights and uh, reports and so on, once you don't have the, the foundation of, uh, of data, you can't do much. And that's why we decided that we be to focus mainly, and this is like the core of the technology, on how to collect customer data without being dependent on developers. So think about it a bit like a WordPress and Wix or WordPress and Shopify. The main differentiation is that you can do it without developers having like different uh, templates of uh, designs and uh, marketplace and so on. It's amazing, but that's not the, the, the main reason why people decide on, uh, on choosing this alternative. So, so that's what we're doing very differently. Got it. You mentioned uh, Google Analytics, but the first mm-hmm. product you built was actually built around for Facebook, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I shared before the story that the initial space I decided that I want to deal with was analytics. I felt that it's really hard to get answers. Um, But I also mentioned that I really love getting to the market and understanding it. I also feel that it's it's very important to to sense the field, to sense people, to understand how uh, challenging it is to get to them, how they're they're seeing, what are they looking for. And the initial tool that I decided to build was around Facebook Analytics. So the idea was always to build something bigger, but I saw a very interesting opportunity around Facebook Analytics. I think that this is like the main platform for advertising today. It was the same a few years ago. And their analytics and ads UI is very, very basic, very hard to get insights from. Uh, people lose lots of money because they don't really understand what's working and what doesn't. 
and, and we just created a better analysis of how the ads behave. Okay. And, and we, initially that was bootstrapped, the business, right? You hadn't raised any money at that point? Yeah. Okay. So you've kind of built this product and from what I understand, you know, the, the, the feedback was very positive. It sounded like you were onto something here, but that kind of changed when you started talking to investors. Like what happened? Yeah. So that's something that in hindsight I would change and I would probably act differently. So actually the product was amazing. I remember like the first day we launched it and I put like a place like $50 on Facebook for a few ads. I thought, okay, let's see if people are using it and if I can even like acquire customers in $50 a day. By the way, the reason that we were bootstrapped at first is was because it was very important for me to really understand the market and to understand the space. And I think that many entrepreneurs, mainly today, that there's lots of money rush into taking money. And it's important to understand like there's no way back. Once you took money, you can't really t- tell your investors, okay, I don't really like this, this space. I want to change it completely. Like you can pivot, but it's not as easy when as when you're bootstrapping. So I, I started telling that we had like a very limited budget. I started like the Facebook ads and probably like 30 minutes after uh, I started Facebook ads. I got uh, an email from a customer to the like info to Ruby. I was like for the first user. We saw like someone signed up, started using it, and it was an email saying like, "Wow, this is amazing!" For the first time, I understand my audiences. Did, did you say you got somebody in thirty minutes? Yeah, yeah, I got like somebody clicking the ad, using the ad, and sending us an email that this is amazing. And wow. And, and yeah, and this was like, wow. I think like it's so hard to get you to great feedback with something that is low touch and to get someone who doesn't know your brand, seeing an ad on Facebook, using the product and, and really manage to get value out of it. And that was amazing. And we saw great engagement, great feedback, ability to, to bring uh, customers uh, inbound, low touch. And uh, I decided now it's time to to raise money. It was like two months after we we launched it. And I got very uh, negative reactions from investors. So they were all telling me that Facebook are probably going to change their UI soon. You're building a business uh, based on uh, Facebook not having a good interface. That's the entire business. And I agree with them. I, I think that they were right in, in some sense, but uh, we had something really good that they think that could have been like the seed of, of of a more mature product. And I decided just to kill it because I felt like, okay, I'm just like uh, racing with uh, Facebook. And now like four years later, the Facebook UI looks exactly the same. Um, the, it hasn't changed. They have more advertisers. So in hindsight, I would leave this product, use it as like the growth engine, as a revenue engine. I think like the main lesson is that I had something really good and I decided to kill it. If I had something that didn't really work out, that had an issue, um, that's something else. But we already had something really good. Yeah. Was there a lesson there? Because, you know, I think that 
It sounds like you did the smart, rational thing. You're, you're, you're talking out to people, you get feedback from investors. It's a very valid concern, right? If you're building this whole mm-hmm. business and, and raising money on something that Facebook could change tomorrow, then that's a, a huge potential vulnerability. But I think deep down intuitively, something told you there was something here. Yeah, and I think it was already working. If it was like an idea, a direction, that's something else. But I feel that we had like this small uh, gold mine and it, it might have been, I think that we should have had like a plan B um, all the time. I, I've never thought of like Oribis, just Facebook analytics, uh, but I feel that we had something really good and I dropped it just because of like uh, investors' concerns. So, okay, so so you've you've been kind of building this thing for a year, having conversations, you launch a couple of months later, things are looking great, and then the investor conversations sort of basically pull the plug on the idea. Some people might have given up there or moved on. You didn't. What did you do next? <laughs> Um, I decided to go after the bigger the bigger vision of uh, a new method for marketing analytics. That was actually like the initial plan, but I, I felt at the beginning that I want to start with something that is easier to develop. It was very important for me to also understand like how how to reach users, how to work with marketers, um, and that's why I decided to start with Facebook analytics. But I decided to start from scratch and start developing like the the core technology of the codeless identification of uh, creating the customer uh, behavior data without using code and the product based on it. How big was the size of the team then? Is you and and who else? And one developer. One developer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. By the way, I have to I have to say that like there's something. When I started Arabia, I was like, uh, after two successful startups, I could have raised money probably pretty easily. But I think that there's something very healthy about starting with, uh, with a very small team. And I think it takes time to understand the direction, to make some mistakes, to feel the, the market. I don't think that it should be as tiny as two, but I think that there's something very healthy starting out, like five people, eight people. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. So how long did it take for you to to kind of get that next next kind of version of the product shipped? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like the other way around from there. Like the initial product was, okay, let's take everything we can from Facebook API and develop like this uh, very basic UI and release something in two months. And with that, uh, with the second round, it was mostly about, okay, let's build like a very, very different technology and let's base everything on a different aspect, on a different technology. So from the get-go, we knew like uh, it's meaningless to build uh, yet another Google Analytics, even if the UI is going to be nicer or we're going to have some other features. But it was really like, it was really about like different building uh a completely different approach and it took a while I think like it took us uh, like over a year to have the first beta uh, it, it was very challenging together so so by now you've been working on this idea for what a couple of years yeah about like uh, three or four years wow okay so tell me about when you when you did eventually launch this this kind of next version of the product how did you get your first 10 customers? Where, where did they come from? Was this again more kind of just 
outreach? Were you were you running more ads and trying to find people that way? Where where did the first customers come mm-hmm. from? So over here, I also had uh, a shift comparing to how I used to work with my previous companies. I think that what most people do when you have like your uh, first version is to start speaking with some uh, companies you know, friends, uh, other portfolio companies of your investors. And in most cases, they don't represent your typical customer for both sides. So it can't be that uh, they're going to work with you much more and uh, interact more. And if they have a problem, instead of ditching the product, uh, they're going to uh, work with you and wait for explanations. And also the other way around. So sometimes they're uh, nitpicking. And in many cases, and that's like the main reason I decided not to reach out to people I know or that uh, I get to from my network, in many cases, they don't really need your product. So you reach out to another startup company. They say, okay, let's try it out. It's not something that they really need. They're really looking, uh, as they're really, really actively looking for. And what I try to do with the Rebe, and this is like a concept I'm a big believer in, is to find people that really need my, uh, my product. So from day one, I started with Facebook ads, and that's what gave me the ability to really test the entire loop. So it was, what is the right messaging to, to hook people? So that was also very interesting to, to understand if, uh, if it's something that people are interested in. Um, how do I get people to understand the product? Uh, uh, this is critical because this is the entire, the, the entire difference between a, a low-touch company and an enterprise company. Do I manage to get people to see a Facebook ad, to install the product, and to, and to see the value? And uh, then do I get them to pay? So I think there's something much, much more interesting with uh, getting inbound leads from the get-go, and you're able to get to more people. Something, for example, that happened to me a lot with my previous company, um, in which the first like 10, 20 customers were uh, Israeli companies we knew, we got to. And in many cases, we started working with them. They, they found it interesting, but there was always uh, something that happened. Someone uh, just left the company. They have a bigger project. And it, it was always, uh, in many cases, it got stuck. And when you really simulate getting to potential customers the way you will when you'll be bigger, uh, you learn much more and much faster. I would say that it's not like that. You can do like a technical, uh, like one thing that we've done at the beginning is asking favors from friends to just install Ruby on the website. And we checked that everything works correctly. And so on the technical side, it's something else. But to really understand the product market fit, I would try to simulate getting to people that are not on your network and to understand how they're working with the product. Now, many people rule out Facebook because they're thinking, well, I'm selling a B2B product. And mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason, people think Facebook you know, is like a B2Z C kind of platform. But we know that people... People work at companies, people, those people are on Facebook. So tell me a little bit about like, what did that sort of initial kind of funnel look like? How did you figure out who to target or how to target people on Facebook? And then 
what were you doing? Were you just like running ads and trying to get people directly to sign up for a trial? Were you doing some kind of initial message and retargeting? What, what was the, what was the approach that you were taking in those early days that you found was working for you? Mm-hmm. So lots of trial and error. I feel that the beauty about marketing is that uh, unlike product, you can try a lot of different things. So I tried with like five different ads. They were very basic, which was mainly about the messaging and some nice image. Um, I worked with freelancers on the Upwork and Fiverr for the design. I tried out different audiences. I think that Facebook is probably the easiest place to start with because it's much easier to create audiences. And unlike, for example, like LinkedIn, that is more B2B, where you need to understand much better what you're doing. And in many cases, the funnel is is longer and more complicated. So I think that uh, Facebook is a very good sandbox. Unlike search and unlike uh, where it's less about the messaging and unlike YouTube that you need to prepare videos that uh, uh, that take longer. And and how did you how did you figure out who to target on Facebook? Were you using just like were you, were you targeting people in particular whatever you could get in terms of demographic information about them where they might work, or were you trying to you know build your own custom audience? Like how how did you do that? So there were two different approaches. The first one was working with interests. So just to target digital marketing, Google Analytics, other names of of relevant companies and so on. Um, It works to an extent. I think one of the main challenges is that uh, lookalikes always works best. But in order to get a good seed, you need to have like a few hundred people that signed up to your your service. And with B2B, it takes a while. So another thing that they've done was like gated content with the articles about uh, marketing analytics. You need to sign up. You need to leave your email. But it's much easier to get people to do it uh, rather than uh, uh, sign up to a product or installing a product. So I think it cost me like, uh, let's say like a dollar or two to get someone to sign up for the gated content. And then I was able to get to a few thousand people to create the initial seed for lookalikes. So my approach is to try to think of like a cheaper way to create your first seed of lookalikes and then to start working with it. Okay, awesome. Do you remember what you were charging for the product at that time? Well, we actually started for free. It's it's very tricky because I think like one of the main challenges of uh, entrepreneurs, and I, I feel it all the time, and I guess that all entrepreneurs that are VC back uh, are also experience it uh, a lot, is that you have like two customers. The first one is like the real customers, and the second one is the investors. And I think like it's very, very tempting to start charging from the get-go because you want to learn if people are paying and you want to earn money. So you have a local version rate, you have low ARR, and then you get to the next round and you say, okay, so I have uh, like a 10K ARR. And it's much easier to say I'm free revenue and not to get into all the metrics. So the reason it was free it was because I was before the next round, I didn't want to show like low metrics and... And it's super tricky because you have like two customers that churn and then you have like 10% churn and then investors start uh, dealing with it. <laughs> yeah. So it was free at first. After the round, we started with $79 a month. 
And I think what really helped us to grow is that was at, at one point we decided that we want to really increase the prices. We increased it to 300 doors and then 500 doors. We saw that people that are serious, that are actually using the product, really see how much it, it saves them with marketing expensive. They're, they're serious about it and they're willing to pay much more and it works much more for them. And people with very low, very small websites that uh, have a very limited budget and probably can't pay a few hundred dollars a month are usually not a very good fit for the product. They don't invest in it much. They don't see enough value. So for us, changing the pricing, and that's, by the way, something that we're doing in a, on an ongoing basis. So right now we're not changing a lot of price itself, but we're playing a lot with packaging and upsells and so on. I think I think it's really critical for having a successful company because in most cases we're uh, so obsessed with uh, getting more leads and more traffic that we forget how easy in most cases it is to optimize the revenue by 20, 30 percent by finding the right pricing packages. Yeah. Now, this I think is a very interesting one because when I looked at REB, it was like, I think the plans today, or certainly when I saw was, they, they were starting at around $500 a month. And so you're thinking about, okay, there's $6,000 a year for, and, and there's a positioning challenge here, I think, right? Because a lot of people will say, oh, it's it's a, it's an alternative to Google Analytics. And so there's a big leap that someone has to make from mm-hmm. paying nothing for Google Analytics and paying you know $6,000 plus a year for Arabi. For now, a lot of founders would would sort of think about a market like this and say, you know, God, how, how do I compete when there's a free alternative? It's going to be really hard for me to be able to charge anything. If I do, maybe I should just be charging a little bit, but not going kind of super high. But when you and I were talking earlier, you were saying that actually that was one of the things that you regret regretted that you actually you know, you, sh- you wish you hadn't started with, with such low pricing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So first of all, I think that when we look at many successful products, you can say that there is some free alternative or a cheaper alternative. You can even say like, why do I need a CRM if I can manage all my customers uh, within an Excel file? Right, good point. So yeah. th- there's always a reason why you need to to pay more. And uh I think that with Zoribi, with our customers, they, they see, they definitely see the value. So th- there are two ways in which you can justify the, the pricing. So the first one is just they, they get better marketing analytics and they're able to optimize their budget much better. So let's say, for example, that you're spending, uh, let's even take like a, a pretty modest uh, marketing budget of like 10K a month. If you're able to optimize it by even like 10%, you're saving $1,000. And in most cases, people that use Google Analytics are unable to really understand uh, what their channels are doing. So if you're able to allocate the budget better, to understand which content to write, to understand uh, which changes to make to your website, it's super significant. And another uh, aspect is just the cost of developers. So what happens today, and that's uh, bringing me back to the example of like WordPress compared to Wix or to Shopify, most companies work with either like in-house or uh, external developers every time they need to 
collect new data, they need to set a new report, and, and that usually costs them a few hundred dollars uh, a month, and they need to be relied on someone else. So it's pretty easy to explain how they're going to see this money back and which cost they're saving today. Um, and I think, as I mentioned, like in many cases, if you have a superior product, you can charge more. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so you'd been working on this this idea for a while. You you had the one developer with you. The the Facebook product didn't didn't work out as planned, and then you went back to the drawing board and, and built this this alternative. What point did the did you sort of feel the business started to take off? At what point did, were you able to start hiring, or or maybe another way is just like you know how long did it take for you to get to you know like the first million ARR? So until two years ago, we were a pretty small team of about like uh, 10 people. And it took me a while to get to a point that I thought that I I have like product market fit. It it wasn't about pivoting the product, but it was more about polishing the product. I'm I'm a big believer in uh, taking things from good to great or from medium to good to great all the time. And that is something that we keep on doing with the rebeats. It's more about like taking the existing features and improving them and polishing them and changing the performance and the UI and the capabilities all the time. And the thing like the initial feedback that we received that uh, from customers was that they, they really need this kind of product and they were very excited about the codeless collection and about the, the concept of uh, a different approach for Google Analytics, but it wasn't there yet. So we saw that the engagement wasn't high enough and we kept on polishing it. And by the way, as as I mentioned before, I think today companies try to grow as fast as possible. And with today's cloud, we met, uh, I really understand it, but I also feel that it's much easier to move faster and to get a product market fit when you're a smaller team. And when all the changes are quicker, you have a smaller customer base that you need to address. So it might took us longer, but I'm very happy that we took the time. So until like two years ago, we were only 10 people. We were at a very low ARR. And then we really start hitting the gas. So we saw that everything is working uh, people are reacting well, and they think that we moved from like a marketing spend of like two thousand dollars a month to fifty k a month, building all the marketing and the uh, and sales machines. Until then, we were mainly R and D, and then we were able to to grow pretty fast. So I think that from like the one hundred k to one million in ARR, it took us like probably like uh, less than one year, maybe like eight or ten months. And their marketing spend was most of that still has that still been going on on paid acquisitions? Are you still doing Facebook ads? Yeah, we're still doing uh, mainly Facebook and YouTube ads. That's interesting. All right, we, we we should wrap up before we do that. Just one quick question. I know one of the things that you you've also decided to do is to go into you you focus on verticals. So you focus as you mentioned, marketing agencies and e-commerce businesses and and so on. Is that something you've done recently or, or was that a while back? Because in many ways, it's smart to be able to segment your, your, your audience and, and, and target them in different ways. But it also feels like there's a lot of work that suddenly, you know, you, you kind of have multiples of, of work just by having these different 
verticals and funnels and, and so on. So what was the main main driver for that? And, and is that something that's working today? So I think there are two levels of uh, going vertical. The first one is to really change the product. I think it's amazing. And it's something that we were really planning to do. Um, even like changing the terminology within the product for each vertical, but also adding the uh, specific features. And another level that is easier is packaging the, the product uh, in a different way. And that's the main thing that we've done. So we created different, we created different uh, landing pages and onboarding flow for e-commerce and marketing agencies, highlighting uh, the features for them. We created some features for them, but uh, it, it's still pretty minor within the product. But you see, like once you tell people that, okay, now you have a tool for e-commerce analytics and they see it from the onboarding and they see the right terminology, it makes magic. And there's a huge difference in the conversion rate. But once people feel that it's specific for them, they will put more resources to test out the product. So I, I feel that that was a very wise decision and definitely a direction that we're going to explore more and probably create more packages around different verticals. Awesome. All right, we are out of time. So let's let's just wrap up. I'm going to go on to uh, the lightning round. Uh, I'm going to ask you seven quick fire questions. So just uh, try to answer them as quickly as you can. Okay. Ready to go? Yes. All right. What's the best piece of business advice you've received? And try to stay focused. Don't uh, work on too many projects, features in parallel. So do one thing right. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? <laughs> I have to admit that like two or three years ago, I decided to stop reading business books and to start reading fantasy books. I really need this like vacation from, uh, from work and to, to visit different worlds when I have some time. So... Right now, I'm reading a book called uh, The Book of Dust, but uh, maybe my recommendation is to take some time off from business books. Yeah, not a bad, not bad advice. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Being very modest. I think that the world is changing all the time and you need to be very flexible. So yeah, being modest, understanding the changes, learning everything from scratch all the time. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Actually, one very good habit that I adopted about like a year or two ago was to stop making to-do lists. So it was always very much about like, what am I going to do every day? And I felt that it added lots of stress to my life. I always felt that I'm competing with a to-do list. So right now I have this like very long list and it's unstructured and it's not by day, and there aren't very specific goals for the, the personal uh, tests that they have. And I found it like something that really helped my productivity and creativity. So you, you just kind of look through there and, and see what, what kind of pops out and decide to work on that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've done something similar to that. I think that, I think there's something to that, other than waking up and feeling stressed because 
all the stuff that you didn't do yesterday is now carried over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have 20 things that I need to complete today. Yeah, and uh, I really, like, I feel that every day I, I come back home and I, uh, I tell my husband that uh, I didn't manage to complete my test today and I have so much to do. Yeah. And, and then I just, like, and then I decide to start to, to do less and to try to manage my time better. And then I just decided that, like, I want to to do what I feel that I'm most productive at every day. So my, my productivity advice is to be more loose about your productivity. Yeah, I love that. Uh, what's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Wow, I have plenty. I think something that I... Or maybe you're already working on one. No, <laughs> but something that I find very interesting is everything around economics. So like trying to build like different models, like something that I find very interesting is the entire concept of uh, like salaries. If there is a different way to, to pay people to build different structures, I feel that uh, like this entire, entire space didn't change at all for like hundreds of years. And so that's something that I find very interesting. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I go to lots of workshops and everything around like being more spiritual. I think that as I like mature more, I, uh, I'm less about like the facts of the world and I'm becoming, uh, I'm, I believe more about uh, like the spirit of the world and that there are lots of things that we, we can't explain. Cool. And, and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Well, I have to admit that between like managing a startup and uh, having young children, I have like no personal life. <laughs> so it used to be more around like art. I hope to, to get back there soon. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, if uh, people want to find out more about Orbi, they can go to Orbi. That's O R I B I dot I O. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, probably on uh, LinkedIn or Facebook. Okay, we'll uh, include links to uh, your your profiles there in the show notes. Well. Iris, thank you so much for uh, for joining me and sharing your your story. I think it's always inspirational for a lot of people uh, who who listen to this show to to hear about somebody who not that long ago was bootstrapping with one developer and and now is in a very different place. And so, thank you for sharing your story and 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 kind of your lessons along the way. And uh, Hopefully, it's going to be uh, helpful or, or inspirational for, for people listening. So appreciate you making the time to do this. And uh, I wish you and the team uh, the best of success. Thank you. All the best. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs>